Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Thursday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. Towards the end of 2023 and over the holiday break, the U.S. Department of Justice unsealed a formal complaint against the founders of a company that had once claimed to protect their clients from chargeback fraud. And while reading the 25-page complaint, a fascinating story about a type of fraud that I really haven't talked much about on the podcast was unveiled. So I thought I'd go through it on today's episode. This is the third or fourth case that I've seen the U.S. Department of Justice file in the last few months targeting financial fraudsters, and I hope they're just getting started. One of the reasons, not only because I hope that justice is served against fraudsters, but one of the reasons why I hope that they're just getting started and that we are going to see more cases like this and the documents unsealed as they were in mid-December is that there's a lot that can be learned from real cases and from trial paperwork as they really have to set out the case and explain how the fraud worked and really go into details to be able to prove their case just even in the filings. So, uh, you know, just like with the civil case that Amazon filed against the refund fraud group Rent, as well as some of the fraudulent customers who participated in refund claims fraud and some of their employees who helped the refund fraudsters. There was a lot to learn in that document as I went through it um, a few weeks ago. And so there's a lot to learn in this case too. And this is more around merchant processing fraud, which brings me back to my roots. I've you know shared my career history uh, before, but uh, in case you're not or I didn't start out on uh, the e-commerce fraud side, I actually started out on the merchant processing side, uh, working for an acquiring bank. And uh, that's the kind of fraud that doesn't always get talked about very much, but I know there's some fascination about it, um, whether you're an issuing bank or you're an e-commerce company or you're a two-sided marketplace or a fintech that has merchant processing or you're a merchant processor. So uh, when I read this case, I thought, you know, this would be a really my version of fun, a uh, fun way to explain how this type of fraud works. And I have to give a shout out to actually my guest from just this last Tuesday, Frank McKenna, for sharing uh, this story with me. He uh, published an article about it and asked me to uh, provide a little bit of editing help as this is a new type of fraud uh, for him. And uh, reading through just the complaint um, isn't doesn't it explain everything. So I helped a little bit. And then I said, I hope you don't mind. I'm going to read this on the podcast. So I'll also include... Um, a link to not only the formal document and complaint against the founders of this company and their associates, but I'll also uh, provide the link to Frank's article on this topic in the show notes as well. And um, we'll go into a little more detail today and I'll um, explain a little bit more, but uh, if you just want a short version of it to share with somebody in your company or uh, 
read the Cliff's Notes. That's available too. So if you've ever worked in fraud for an online company that accepts credit cards, or if you've been on the acquiring side of fraud, you know about the 1% ratio. That 1% ratio kind of rules our world when you're in e-commerce fraud prevention. And basically, it goes like this. So if a company receives over 100 chargebacks, and the total number of chargebacks uh, divided by the total number of sales in a month is equal or greater than uh, 0.9% for Visa transactions and 1% for MasterCard transactions, then chances are that merchant will end up on a list. Uh, When I worked on the merchant processing side, I jokingly referred to it as the naughty list, but it's uh, the excessive chargeback monitoring list or um, the excessive dispute monitoring list uh, goes by both names. And ultimately, at the end of the day, if merchants exceed that for several months in a row without uh, reducing those chargebacks, then they're subject to fines and fees and ultimately could be subject to not accepting credit cards anymore. Um, I know, you know, one example that I have shared in the past on the podcast, and it's um, one that, you know, because it's public, I'm going to share it again, rather than outing any other companies. But uh, when I was on the merchant processing side, one of the main accounts that I had as a risk analyst was for Silicon Valley Bank. And one of the merchants that ended up on the excessive chargeback monitoring list pretty quickly, uh, or actually they were already on the list when I got the job, uh, was a company called Facebook. Uh, we also had you know classmates.com as a uh, mer- merchant, but their chargeback ratio was nothing compared to this other, this newer social media company. And uh, so I had to work with the founder of the company at the time because it was really just a three-person company to explain to them where their chargebacks were coming from and how they could reduce them holistically because otherwise they were getting up there in the number of months where they could be subject to no longer being allowed to accept Visa and MasterCards and that would be detrimental to any online business. So while it's true that you know some chargebacks can't be prevented, like especially first party fraud at chargebacks. Um, and I've ranted about the loopholes and the frustration with that on previous podcasts. So we'll leave that there. But really, the reason why there's a ratio set for merchants is because it, honestly, merchants can cause their own chargebacks, whether it's because of business practices, lack of fraud prevention technology, their strategy, etc. And actually, in my consultancy over the last nine years, I've worked with several different types of companies that when I look at their chargebacks and perform root cause analysis, I can often find things that they're doing to unintentionally cause chargebacks on their company. Like maybe they didn't provide the right phone number on this uh, on the descriptor that ends up on someone's credit card statement. So if they have a problem or if they don't know, they don't recognize the charge, instead of the customer picking up the phone and calling the company and asking, who are you? What did I buy? And if they don't recognize it, ask for a refund, they'll just call their bank and cancel it. Other times it's because the company didn't explain very well what they were selling. But there's also just fraudulent merchants out there. And so the ratio of chargebacks is one of the main ways that acquiring banks or processors and and ultimately Visa and MasterCard measure and track the risk of potentially fraudulent merchants. You know, even though most processors have a pretty thorough, uh, depends on the processor, I guess, 
but many of them have a pretty thorough underwriting process and try to verify that the company exists. There's always going to be a few that slip through. And so being able to measure a company's chargebacks and measure what the customers are saying, essentially, at a higher level is one way that banks can see who, what merchants may potentially be a problem. And ultimately, if a merchant processor has too many merchants that have really high chargebacks, then they can also be liable and on the hook. And if a merchant, you know, charges up cards and never provides services for those, you know, or never provides goods for those items, but they already ran off with the money that was deposited into their bank account, then the payment processor is responsible for all of that money. So it's a series of different entities taking liability. And so whoever's taking liability for those payment processing accounts needs to have a way to measure risk. So the chargeback rate is the main one. There's a couple of other ways, but that's really what we're going to focus on today. So this is kind of background information before I dive into uh, the formal complaint from the Department of Justice. So like I mentioned, you know, some of the reasons why there might be a fraudulent merchant is if they aren't providing what they say they will. Like whether they don't ship the item or the item is completely different than what, you know, someone thought they ordered online or over the phone. Um, they didn't provide the service that they said that they would provide. Uh, this is especially true for e-commerce, obviously, or any card not present, because oftentimes a consumer is trusting a company with their credit card number and trusting them to charge them before they get the item, before the item ships and, you know, is at their doorstep or before, you know, a service is provided, whether that's someone coming to your house and you know washing your windows or you're doing something like that, or you're paying in advance for travel. And then you get there and, oh, there was no ticket booked. Well, yeah, you're going to call your bank and file a chargeback. So those are some of the things. Um, other ways that merchants become fraudulent are if they double or triple charge cards. Uh, there's been a few political campaigns that have gotten in trouble for that over the last several years where maybe people think that they're just charging one big sum or they uh, just want to charge one transaction for a political campaign for a donation. But instead, their card continuously gets run, whether it's monthly or several times a month, whenever the campaign needs a little extra money. That is a sign of a fraudulent merchant or you know someone who's definitely very risky. These are giving customers a good reason to contact their bank and file a chargeback. And then also, you know, if the customer doesn't recognize the company on their statement, right? Or if it's a fraudulent merchant account that just charges stolen cards, sometimes that can happen. That has happened, um, especially with payment processors that may have a strictly online or automated underwriting process where sometimes fraudsters will get through and that's kind of the mother load. They don't have to worry about cashing out because they're just running stolen cards. They'll say, you know, they'll open up a fraudulent account and just start running stolen cards and hope that the money gets deposited to them and then they'll take off, uh, leaving the payment processor with all of the money in the for chargebacks. So that's kind of the way that payment processors are measuring the risk of the merchants, you know, so they're watching the chargeback volume. If it's going up over a certain amount, they know that this could be a potentially risky merchant. And they'll often reach out and ask for a chargeback remediation program or a plan. And they'll also ask you to know, why are these coming in? And so oftentimes you have to say, well, this is the kind of business we are. This is what we provide. We've researched our chargebacks and we've found that it's because of third party fraud and we need to, uh, better improve the technology for identifying third-party fraud transactions. 
or whatever that is, right? Or we found that our warehouse wasn't shipping items as quickly as we told people they would be shipped. And so when they didn't get it on the third day, they were upset and called their bank instead, things like that. But when they don't answer or they don't respond or they're sketchy when they respond, then that is cause for pause on the processing side and they'll investigate more. And there's a few things that the uh, payment processor can do to limit their exposure and risk from a potentially fraudulent merchant where they can ask for a... um, They can ask for reserves or a high dollar deposit uh, from a new merchant or a merchant that's maybe looking risky all of a sudden, or they can delay the deposit. So they can say, you you won't get this deposit for 30 days, things like that. That can really impact business, but it also is, you know, our mechanisms to limit the exposure that the payment processor has. So there's one other rule uh, in card processing that's important to know before diving into this case. And that is that not all company types are allowed to accept credit cards, especially online or, you know, card not present, but just in general. For example, uh, companies aren't allowed to accept credit cards for purchases for drugs or, you know, items or equipment that either make or, you know, help drug use. And that gets complicated in the U.S. because, you know, the state level, there are several states that have marijuana, recreational marijuana legalized, but at the federal level, it's not. So uh, it's still a case where it's a cash only business. And uh, that has caused a lot of issues um, from personal safety all the way on. But, you know, not diving into that today, just that's an example of um goods or services that you're just not allowed to accept credit cards for. Uh, You're also not allowed to accept credit cards for adult services. Um, When I worked for the payment processor, we often would use the the phrase goods, not services, uh, meaning that if there was an exotic dance club or, um, you know, what we just colloquially refer to as a strip club, um, they could charge credit cards for items in their gift shop but not for um, dances or other types of services like that. So uh, we would have to keep a close eye on those types of merchants to say, wait a second, I don't think there's something for that amount. And Or can you provide us with a copy of the, the receipt to find out what they purchased for $1,000 at the gift shop? Things like that. Gambling is a big one, uh, especially offshore gambling, uh, poker, you know, online poker, um, all of those things, most of them are not allowed to accept Visa and MasterCard. And so if they do, it's either because they process uh, cards outside of one of the very few countries where gambling is legal, or they purchase them, um, or (laughs) they skirt around the issue and uh, might be using a different merchant account that doesn't say what they're using it for. Also things like telemarketing, scams, uh, counterfeit goods, pyramid schemes, companies in specific countries, especially where there's sanctions lists. Uh, Russia is one that's you know definitely on the radar right now. Uh, those are all situations where companies aren't allowed to accept credit cards if they're in those countries or if they uh, are accepting payments from those countries or if they're accepting card payments for any of those things that are considered uh, illegal or just not allowed to process credit cards. You know, the way that uh, the card brands see it, it's a privilege to accept their cards. It's not a right. And so they're allowed to provide rules and parameters around them and who's allowed to accept them and who isn't. 
And often if or when uh, companies in these categories lie or are given, you know, a legitimate card processing account, their chargeback ratios will flag them um, and they'll get, you know, caught or shut down. Uh, if you think about it, if somebody, you know, is charging a lot of gambling on their credit card, you're probably going to have a lot of chargebacks for that because there's going to be buyer's remorse or they're going to say that their card was stolen or they're going to say services not rendered because they didn't win. Uh, so those are all, you know, oftentimes they go hand in hand as far as high chargebacks and illegitimate purchases or, you know, illegitimate merchants that are accepting cards for things they're not supposed to, but not always, but that's kind of what, you know, if you're on the processing side or if you've ever wondered what uh, merchant processing risk looks like, that's, a lot of it, they're looking for, you know, high dollar uh, anomalies that happen on an account. So, you know, a merchant account traditionally charges under $500 per order and it's for physical goods. And all of a sudden you see a $10,000 transaction. Well, that might be a sign that the merchant is being defrauded. You know, someone called them and all of a sudden ordered hundreds of an item without, you know, any proof of who they were or knowledge of who the person is or, you know, maybe they got a hold of a stolen card and they're, you know, they're hurting financially and they decided to just put it through or, you know, something like that. Somebody did a cash advance. That's also another thing that's you know not allowed on a credit card. So those are all things that when you are on the processing side of fraud, you're looking for, you're looking for anomalies, but then you're also looking at the chargeback rates. Um, and it's important to know what that merchant is processing, you know, what they do, who they do, who their customers are. It's important to know, you know, that they actually are providing the services and the goods that they say they are. Um, because again, as a processor, you're on the hook for them if they all of a sudden, you know, go out of business overnight. And I only had one account uh, go bankrupt while I was a risk analyst. And that is a whole other story for another time. But um, we saw it coming and pulled reserves, but unfortunately didn't pull enough. Um, and so unfortunately, the bank had to cover the rest. And that was an expensive lesson and then did impact other future merchants that came to that bank wanting payment processing. Their things were a little more strict for a while uh, because the bank certainly, want, you know, they want to make money off of the merchants that process cards with them. They don't want to lose money. So as I mentioned, there is a... Uh, civil complaint against the founders of a company called Chargeback Surety. It's uh, actually CB, but it stands for Chargeback. Uh, Surety, S-U-R-E-T-Y, LLC. Uh, they're founded in North Carolina, um, as well as a lot of other company names. And then the individuals who founded Chargeback Surety and who were kind of in, oversaw um transaction laundering and other fraud that occurred. And, you know, oftentimes we don't see complaints or, you know, any repercussions for this type of fraud because it's complicated and it's challenging for people to understand. And, you know, in order to file complaints and in order to seek justice against people who are stealing in this way, you have to understand the investigators and the prosecutors have to understand what's happening, you know, how does this work? How does the system work of merchant processing? What's considered bad? What's considered good? What was actually happening on this? Okay, we've got all this proof, but what does this proof mean? What does all this data mean? And so a lot of times we don't, you know, we just don't see it. And that's why I wanted to go through it a little bit. And I'm going to try to explain it as best I can uh, while, you know, uh, not having a whiteboard or any slides or anything else. 
I know I've been promising to tell you more about SPEC and why I invited them to sponsor episodes of Fraudology, and there's actually so many things that I want to tell you and will tell you over the next several weeks. But the first thing I wanted to make sure that you hear about is their Trust Cloud. SPEC's Trust Cloud protects the integrity of the digital user while simplifying the risk process. It allows you to discover insights across the entire digital user experience. It allows you to catch attacks early. With access to full visibility, you can scan visitor behavior across their entire journey to catch the risk patterns that traditional fraud check APIs miss. Visualize the flow of attacks, identifying areas to catch them early, and leaving bad actors with nowhere to hide. It also allows you to start each journey with instant trust. You can boost platform integrity by instantly welcoming return customers to their personal account experience, while your trust platform invisibly screens for signs of compromise and abuse. It also allows you to remove friction for good customers and increase conversions. By using a single source of truth, you can detect evolving fraud attacks and identify conversion drop-offs and optimize your payment strategy. The bottom line is when you're able to to see every customer's behavior from the moment that they enter your website until the time of checkout or when they open up a new account, you can identify that before the fake account is made, before the transaction is even made and now you've got a fraud transaction in your platform. It's honestly game-changing and I'm really excited for more people to learn about it. So to learn more about Spec and this new technology and especially their Spec Trust Cloud, go to www.specprotected.com. So first, um, Chargeback Surety touted itself as a chargeback fraud protection company, uh, but they ended up being anything but. And we're, it's hard to know if this was something that was intentional from the beginning, if they intentionally had these plans to commit fraud or if that kind of like a lot of companies over the years, and we talked about this when we talked about founder fraud uh, just on Tuesday's episode, oftentimes the intention of the company is good. And, you know, they plan on, you know, doing things within the confines of the law, but that doesn't always make money. And so sometimes they'll uh, end up skirting the law or lying or, you know, committing fraud to be able to make money because as we know, fraud pays, right? Committing fraud pays. Uh, so it might be a situation where the company had good intentions, but uh, then somebody came to them and said, hey, can you do this for us instead? And they realized they could charge a heck of a lot more uh, and it would be easier to get customers if they were providing um, a service that isn't legal. And so they do that. Uh, the Justice Department is accusing Chargeback Surety of running a sham of an operation, processing payments for fraudulent merchants, and then burying the evidence of that fraud with thousands of tiny legitimate transactions. The DOJ filed a civil case against the company to stop them from operating the scheme. Because instead of helping merchants prevent fraud, they allegedly just helped disguise fraudulent activity from banks. I'm partially reading Frank's article and then partially I'm going back and forth between Frank's article and the complaint. Uh, one of the things Frank's article said is don't bother going to the site. Uh, Chargeback Surety has taken it down and all of their sites within their network. Uh, so Frank went to the Internet Archives to see what the sites look like um, to get a few pictures for his article. Um, 
the company was, so Chargeback Surety was founded in 2017 for chargeback fraud protection. I don't actually know what chargeback fraud is. I mean, I know there's fraud and fraud can cause a chargeback. Uh, sometimes companies will call first party fraud, you know, that results in a chargeback, chargeback fraud. But I just thought it was worth noting that that's not really a phrase that I use uh, or that I'm really familiar with, even though chargebacks have played a role in my career for the last almost 20 years uh, in different ways. I've never really heard it called chargeback fraud, um, but just something to know. Unless, you know, a merchant thinks, well, all chargebacks against me are fraud. Well, that's not going to be the case. But um, so they are founded in 2017. Um, and the Department of Justice alleges that two people, Thomas Edie and Travis Smith, organized the scheme. Uh, fun fact, I was secondary connections with both of them on LinkedIn. We had several connections in common. Um, I found that funny when I looked that up. Uh, so the company claimed to be the nation's most comprehensive chargeback fraud protection company, helping merchants avoid chargebacks with AI, which... Uh, that's not really possible right now. Um, I know of only one chargeback management company that does use big data and machine learning to determine uh, what types of responses to provide to chargebacks, but not to reduce chargebacks. That's for sure. Um, not in this way anyway. Uh, so uh, their their motto was keep your bank happy. Um, and on their website, it said headquartered in the San Francisco Bay Area, which remember the documents say they were in North Carolina. Uh, chargeback Surety serves as the nation's most comprehensive chargeback fraud protection service, offering solutions for card, ACH and e-check payments, which the latter are, are uncommon. We specialize in real time account monitoring, immediate response, security testing and a range of consulting services. And then their uh it says chargeback surety in big letters. And then their uh, slogan is keep your bank happy and lower fees. Well, their banks weren't happy in the end, but we'll get there. So according to business registration documents, chargeback surety is actually was created in North Carolina with its registered address in Raleigh, North Carolina. But its principal place of business was located in a residence, like in a house. Frank provided the picture in his article in South Lake Tahoe in California. And the company's location on their website, since taken down, indicates that they operate out of a small house in San Mateo, California. So, I mean, I operate Chargelytics out of my house, so that's not, you know, but I'm also not claiming to be the nation's foremost blah, 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 and, you know, this big company that's not. And it's a pretty, you know, small, modest California house where I think Frank took the picture from Google Maps because he's thorough like that. But what they ended up becoming was a network of sham companies and websites. As most good fraud schemes do, they can get quite complicated. Um, and that's the whole point of money laundering and crime, right? Creating layers so the organizers are shielded from the actual fraud. The alleged scheme was designed so illegal or high-risk merchants, so the merchants who are not allowed to accept credit card payments, and these merchants would were running scams, selling drugs, and committing other crimes. They were allowing them to do business online and take customer payments. It went something like this. So Chargeback Surety organized a scheme to process payments for high-risk merchants, many of whom would not qualify for a merchant processing account if they disclosed their activity or their true business names. Then there were reseller consultants. They would recruit straw owners as a front 
for fake merchant accounts with generic business names that only had a sham website, but didn't actually sell items to consumers. So they would reach out to people, you know, hey, have you ever wanted to own your own business? Just make one up, create a website, make one up. We're going to get a merchant processing account in your name, and then we're going to give you kickbacks. We'll provide you with a percentage of the money that is processed through the merchant account in your fake business's name. And then uh, this company called Think Processing would hide transactions of the high-risk merchants, several of whom were processing payments without the cardholder's consent. So many of them were doing scams, telemarketing scams to be specific. Within, So they'd hide those transactions of the high-risk merchants within the accounts of the fake merchants they created. So they would also field complaints or chargebacks from consumers and inquiries from banks and payment processors performing diligence on the sham companies. So whenever a bank called and said, hey, you know, we just wanted to ask more information about your merchant account. It looks like it's processing more sales than you said it would, or all of a sudden you have a spike in the amount of money that's coming through or whatever that red flag could be. These sham owners or bank processing company would field those. So basic, and you know, it's funny, actually, just today I was talking to someone who used to be in um, online poker and they said you know, they were a professional poker player, so they didn't deal with this. But when, when other people would charge money on their credit cards to put money on their poker account, and this was like 10, 15 years ago, but it still happens in a lot of cases when people would either those, their card would never actually be charged, but they would get the money credited on their on their poker account, or if it was charged, it would never be the website, the poker website uh, on their statement. It would be like a flower shop or a bakery, you know, and a website, you know, something like that, that looks innocuous, that looks not high risk or anything else. That way, the merchant processors didn't know that those were actually charges for illegal gambling sites. In theory, if someone wants to gamble, they should be using, you know, a different type of payment method than a credit card. I should say that, you know, there is now legal gambling within the U.S. in certain states. Um, I know I had, you know, Dominique on the podcast last year from, I mean, he was at DraftKings for many years. That, I'm 95% certain that they are Actually, I know for sure that they are approved. They are considered high risk merchants, but they are approved for payment processing. These are offshore uh, gambling sites that are happening outside of the U.S., outside of Europe that are not allowed to be. There are some differences in the way that the gambling happens and the betting and everything that I don't know as well as I probably should if I'm going to go down that route. So I'm just going to leave it there. But That is one reason why the gambling that started in the U.S. was just around fantasy sports. It was considered legal gambling then. I know since then, legislation has changed in New Jersey and in Las Vegas to be able to allow online gambling of other types. But that's just not something I'm, I would dare to say that I know enough about to, you know, pass that on. But we can just know that the companies that were processing payments through Chargeback Surety and Think Processing and all of these other companies that were connected to each other, that they were not legal gambling sites. These were ones that, you know, Visa and MasterCard, if they just went to a payment processor and filed it under their own company name, they would be denied right away. So Chargeback Surety did business with um, bad guys, and then they helped them keep their chargebacks low. So their claims to keep the bank happy were actually what they did, but not in the way that was within the processing guidelines or rules set to protect consumers from being charged by fraudulent companies. 
According to the Department of Justice, chargeback sureties network would seek out merchants that sold drugs, engaged in scams, especially telemarketing scams, and other crimes. And then they'd sign them up for payment processing and then keep the bank happy through a series of deceptions. In several cases, chargeback surety and all involved in the scam were aware that these high-risk merchants, in quotation marks, were processing transactions without the knowledge of the cardholders. In other words, these merchants were perpetrating credit card fraud, and chargeback surety was enabling them to continue to do so by covering their tracks and their identities. It was a simple business model that generated approximately $97 million through transaction laundering and deception of cardholders in six years. So they first sign up a lot of bad merchants, you know, then they disguise their activity through fake low risk merchant sites, and they'd extend the fraud by processing microtransactions on prepaid cards designed to keep chargeback rates low. And that was the other half of the scheme. So they had illegal charges without cardholder consent to scam merchants and, you know, tell whether it was telephone scams or other things, illegal gambling sites, etc. And they were you know, these charges to merchants that cardholders didn't recognize. So either a cardholder was scammed and sold something that they never got, and they saw a charge on their card for, you know, anything from bike helmets to interior design. They had all kinds of different sham businesses, bakeries, etc. And they'd obviously file a charge back. Or, you know, maybe some people wouldn't file a charge back because they knew that they were gambling charges but they still were coming up on their card statement as something else. So that still is going to open them up for more chargebacks. So how did they keep it below 1%, right? Because obviously that's the threshold where that's going to get the attention of fraud analysts and risk analysts at merchant processors. And so in reading the documentation from the Department of Justice, what CB surety or chargeback surety did was they charged really large deposits to the illegal merchants. And those deposits would then go to purchase prepaid credit cards. So uh, in one case, they charged $18,000 for a deposit by one of the illegal merchants. They then went and bought $18,000 worth of prepaid credit cards and ran microtransactions on that site or through that merchant to then dilute the denominator, right? So they're diluting the number of sales, knowing that these are on prepaid cards that they control. So they're not going to get chargebacks and they might charge, you know, $1.52 or, you know, maybe $10, but not that much. Right. So it was, you know, keeping it low. And I remember seeing this as, or at least this was something that would come up as a red flag when I was a risk analyst for merchant processing. And we would definitely get a flag if there were transactions for very different amounts. So for instance, there was a merchant uh, and it turned out to be legal, but we uh, ended up getting them two different merchant accounts because they had two different types of products. One was one were microtransactions. They were for gifts or um, like GIF, um, not gifts, but gifts online. I think it was before there were a GIF. I think they called them stickers or whatever, but these little things you could like send somebody an e-card basically, and you could send them an extra animated balloon for a dollar or whatever it was. So we'd see thousands of those charges. And then we'd also see hundreds of charges over thousands of dollars. And those were for advertisements. So because those were for two different things, even though it was the same merchant, that raised a really big red flag. And so when I reached out to the merchant to ask them about it, they explained and it made sense. So then our solution was, okay, well, then you need to have two different merchant accounts. 
So you're charging one for advertising and one for these, you know, digital gifts because it's not, we can't mingle them. They need to have the right uh, merchant category code and you have to be able to explain what they are. And so in this case, you know, there might be a merchant that says that they're an interior designer, but really they are doing pyramid schemes or phone scams, you know, telemarketing or selling drug paraphernalia or whatever it is. But it says that it's for, you know, an interior decorator. So the average transaction let's say is, you know, who knows, like $500, right? And so you see a majority of those, but then, and it often happens in the last few days of the month, all of a sudden you'd see, you know, $1.47 or $2.32 or whatever those microtransactions are just to up the number of sales for the month so that they could keep the merchant's ratio under that 1% threshold, keep it off the radar. Um, Unfortunately for them, obviously they didn't keep it off the radar, (laughs) for long, but so that was the scheme, right? So the first scheme is we're going to provide payment processing to companies that can't get legitimate payment processing. So we're probably going to charge a very high percentage and we're not going to have to advertise as much because they're going to come to us because clearly we're going to be some of the only people that are going to provide this service. And then we're going to pay other people to have these sham websites and these sham businesses that apply for a merchant services account. But really the company that uses them is the one that shouldn't be allowed to pay process payments. And then because those illegitimate merchants are going to get high chargebacks, we're going to dilute the number of sales and dilute the ratio of chargebacks by charging thousands and tens of thousands of microtransactions to keep under the radar. And this plan obviously worked for a long time because the company's been around since 2017. Um, I don't necessarily think that they've been doing this scam since then. It looks like it's just been the last several years, but still. And then Um, The one other point that I wanted to highlight from uh, the actual case file is that, and the case file is really fascinating. I'll definitely put the full complaint, a link to that in the show notes. Uh, There's a lot of interesting tidbits about the different types of businesses. You know, one was a drug with psychoactive ingredients and then, you know, just all, all kinds of different details there. But if I read all of them, this would be a much longer podcast. And then they also talked about how they would cover their tracks. Like if, for example, in April of 2021, a fraud analyst from Elevon, uh, they used various payment processors for this, by the way, there's a few different ones that are named in this complaint. Um, So the government did a lot of great work, or honestly, it's probably the risk analysts from these payment processors did a lot of great work, then handed over to prosecutors, uh, because they were able to find over a hundred different sham accounts across three or four different payment processors. Oftentimes they don't, you know, share with each other who has what or, you know, any customer information. So uh, this obviously was a big case for all of them to work on together. For example, in April, 2021, a fraud analyst from Elevon, a payment processor uh, that's wholly owned by US Bank, emailed the straw owner email address, and then it has the name of the email address and indicated that the merchant account for uh, TNE Mighty Adventures LLC, a sham business that does business as TNE Bike Helmets, was under review. The fraud analyst asked where TNE Bike Helmets inventory was stored, as well as for a photo of the inventory and a receipt showing the business's name and address. And they also requested a bill with the business name and address. In response, the email address claimed that Tanny Bike Helmets could not provide any photos because it was an e-commerce business and did not have access to its inventory. Hmm. 
Okay. I know a lot of e-commerce businesses that have access to their inventory and can take pictures of it, but the email address then attached an invoice of a transaction that it claimed substantiated its business name and address. The attached invoice indicated that on April 1st, 2021, a customer, TH, bought from TNE bike helmets an item called Synth Helmet Pad for a total of $50. A spreadsheet from Defendant Smith's email account indicates that the $50 charge to TH was a charge by Palu Holdings NV, which owns and operates online casinos. So they actually provided an invoice for an online casino saying that it was for a bike helmet. The um, CB surety defendants used an Excel spreadsheet titled Master to track the Gmail address, Google voice phone number, and password for each straw owner and sham company. Defendants forwarded incoming phone calls to the phone numbers associated with the sham companies to Google voice numbers controlled by defendants and the merchant account servicer defendants so that they could field phone calls made to the sham companies and monitor consumer complaints. So they would have the Google voice phone numbers on the credit card statements. So if customers did call, they could field those calls. It does say in here, and this is exactly the point I've been making, if banks and payment processors knew that defendant sham companies would be processing other companies' payments through their merchant accounts, they likely would neither enable the sham companies to obtain merchant accounts nor allow the accounts to remain open. Indeed, when financial institutions and payment processors have learned about the scheme, they have labeled the activity as money laundering, fraud, and transaction laundering, and promptly closed the accounts and rejected applications seeking to obtain new merchant accounts with connecting information. For example, after the financial institution Esquire Bank identified two merchant accounts as potentially engaged in money laundering, Esquire closed the accounts as well as seven additional merchant accounts that appeared to be linked to the two original accounts. After additional investigation, Esquire identified 59 additional accounts associated with the original two accounts and subsequently another 38 associated accounts. Esquire closed all of these accounts. On multiple occasions, Esquire has shut down merchant accounts belonging to the scheme's sham companies due to findings of excessive declined charges or fraud. The CB surety defendants received notifications of these actions by Esquire. Then it goes on to talk about uh, when financial institutions and payment processors have detected defendants' use of the transaction laundering tactic. Financial institutions and payment processors also added the sham companies and straw owners to the card network's TMFs. This is also called the match list, which is basically a do not use list. So it's a master negative list uh, that's used by all payment processors with company name, owner name, you know, email, phone number, etc. and some information and then the reason for the closure. So once those are added to the list, that in turn leads other financial institutions and payment processors to close accounts held by these same sham companies and straw owners or reject applications seeking to obtain new merchant accounts. So that explains why all these accounts were able to be linked together. When a sham company is detected and closed, however, defendants typically start routing the merchant client's transactions through one or more of the many other sham companies that they control and operate. And then in this complaint, it just goes on to talk a little bit more about the, re the chargeback reduction tactic. And then it says defendants collect large deposits from their merchant clients and use those deposits to initiate numerous small dollar sham transactions. 
also called microtransactions, that appear as if they are the payments for merchants' goods or services. The merchant, in effect, pays itself. The money it pays to defendants as part of the large deposit is returned to the business in form of the microtransactions. For their part, defendants collect a percentage of the transactions as a service fee. Because these sham transactions never result in returns or chargebacks, they artificially lower the merchant account's overall chargeback rate. In enabling and conducting these transactions, defendants intend to deceive financial institutions and card networks that monitor the accounts of the merchant clients, causing these entities to extend credit when they would not otherwise do so. CB Surety has utilized this tactic to deceive financial institutions on a large scale. A document stored on a CB Surety Google Drive summarizes an inventory of prepaid debit cards obtained by CB Surety from more than a dozen vendors and totaling over $180,000. In some instances, issuers of CB Surety's prepaid debit cards have become aware of the use of the cards in a manner consistent with chargeback reduction efforts and alerted CB Surety regarding this activity. The chargeback reduction tactic subjects financial institutions to the risk of loss and leads financial institutions to unwittingly facilitate the fraudulent or otherwise illegal or high-risk activities in which defendants' merchant clients are engaged. So because it deflates the chargeback ratio, it's harder for the merchant processors to identify this fraudulent behavior. Uh, Then it goes on to talk all about how uh, the defendants had knowledge of of this crime and were willing and active participants in the fraudulent scheme described above. All defendants have knowingly conspired to further the fraud scheme and have demonstrated their understanding that they are participants in a scheme to deceive financial institutions and to harm consumer victims. Then it talks about the harm to consumer victims and to banks, and then talks about the that they're suing them and that they're putting in a, it's a complaint for temporary restraining order and preliminary and permanent injunctions and other equitable relief is what uh, this is called. And the file, it was um, under seal starting December 1st, but then mid-December, it became unsealed. And that was when Frank sent it to me. And it lists all the names of anyone that's connected to this, the owners of the company, as well as some of the owners of the sham companies and some of the owners of the illegal companies as well, or the companies that shouldn't be accepting credit cards. I will say that the chargeback reduction piece, because I've been in chargeback reduction for a long time, I approach chargeback reduction much differently, as I mentioned earlier. I look at holistically and look at what is the cause and how can we change it in your processes so that those chargebacks don't come in anymore. Um, However, there are a couple of shadier ways that companies will um, assist merchants in reducing chargebacks. Uh, One of them is actually above board and owned by card brands. So that is something that I talked about, oh gosh, I think in July of 2022. Yeah, way back then on the podcast, but you know, that's, it's considered above board. It's expensive, but it's considered above board. But this way, as far as diluting the denominator and diluting the the ratio uh, so that, you know, it's under the threshold and that merchant can continue to abuse their privilege of accepting these cards. That is a practice that some well-known or other chargeback companies have done, at least in the past. Uh, I know of at least two that have been investigated by merchant processors for that. I don't know if it ever got up to the Department of Justice, but if you're a company that does this, I would say you might want to be put on notice. This isn't the right way to reduce chargebacks because you're just continuing to 
perpetrate the fraud, right? If consumers are being taken advantage of, and if there is a high chargeback rate and the merchant isn't doing something to fix it, like they're misrepresenting the product or they're signing people up for subscription services when they don't knowingly, they aren't knowingly subscribing to a monthly service. Those are things that are just enabling more consumer theft really and consumer issues. And so I would take this one example as a warning, especially because now the Department of Justice, at least the United States attorney in California is very aware of this scheme and scam. And they've said in the document that they're looking out for others that are taking advantage of these as well. So um, it's in the Eastern Eastern District of California in the United States District Court. But, you know, other Department of Justice uh, offices and United States attorneys also look at these things. So once there's precedent, it makes it easier. And once there's investigators that understand these schemes, it makes it easier to prosecute more. So I hope that that was fascinating and that made sense. You were able to follow it. I actually really enjoy going through some of these legal complaints like the one for Amazon and this one as well. I would really love to hear from you if you guys enjoy it too. Uh, Like I said, I'll provide the details. So if you want to see any of the pictures that Frank pulled up for his article or you want to read all of the nitty gritty in this document, it's pretty fascinating and uh, does show just another type of fraud prevention uh, and how it works. And that is something that I've been asked before as far as what is merchant account fraud or what does that look like? Well, this is a really popular scheme that they are looking out for. So with that, I'm going to be done for the week, but I am looking forward to bringing you some great guests on Tuesday's episode next week. And I'll look forward to speaking with you again then. Thank you again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.